It's only rock and roll podcast. My name is Don Demuccio, and this, our 13th episode, is coming to you a week late because, as luck would dictate, Rhode Island was mildly hit with the remnants of Hurricane Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah I don't know. But nevertheless, we suffered a prolonged power outage. My apologies. But as the great poet D. Snyder once said, you can't stop rock and roll. And coming up, we have one of the great producers of the rock era, John Boylan, a man who helped create the genre that became known as the California country sound. With artists, he worked with like Rick Nelson, Poco, Linda Ronstadt, as well as producing some of rock's great FM staples, bands like Boston, Quarter Flash, and Little River Band. But first, for his second go-around on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, direct from Sarasota FLA, the illegitimate love child of Buddy Holly and Mamie Eisenhower, Ted Stevens. <laughs> Hey, Donnie, how's it going? <laughs> Not bad, Teddy. Thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks, buddy. This is going to be a wild one. I can feel it in the air down here, buddy. Speaking of things in the air, last time we spoke way back in episode two, believe it or not, I think that was in May. I was uh, your test pilot for that. Yes, you were. Great. We were closing down over here in Rhode Island, my home base in Florida, where you work and reside, was just reopening. How's that working out gig-wise for you? Well, here's what's going on down in sunny FLA. As you know, we have the, I guess by all the news reports, we are now the epicenter of the coronavirus. Congratulations. <laughs> I know. It's like, I'll get, leave it to Florida. Um, but the reality is this. I am playing some gigs as a solo act, mm -hmm. and the band gigs have kind of disappeared so I've tiptoed over into the solo world, A, because the venues don't have the budget to pay a band, a lot of the venues at least I play, and two, they don't want dancing because of the social distancing. So I've been able to stay somewhat busy. Some of the, A couple of the venues that I've played are closed until further notice, until this thing goes away. Other venues have adjusted and have been able to stay open and, and, uh, and, and do a pretty good job at it too. And sad to ask, but how many have disappeared? Yeah, and there's definitely places that are disappearing or might be on the verge of. I don't. We'll see how it plays out. Right now, mm, it's still a little early to say. But the venues I'm playing, tourist venues, the larger restaurants, waterfront venues, are, are all staying in business. They've just had to adjust with the, the new rules and regulations. And recap again for us, because this is a very New England-centric podcast. I think we have a lot of people from Rhode Island and Massachusetts. You started here. You, this is your hometown, um, but you've certainly been to Vegas and did great out there, and now you're in Florida. Compare and contrast a little bit. How is it out there in terms of booking? Is it easier? Do you have to go through a song and dance, or is it more of a word-of-mouth kind of thing? Well, I think it just depends on what you're doing. If you're in Florida, the niche for me is is not playing so much. I'm not playing clubs so much. I'm playing more of bigger restaurants with stages and outdoor venues. Just say uh, tiki bars. I'm a tiki bar guy. That's, That's great. it. I'm That's going great. and it's fun because you can still do original music. You can still rock and roll. There's definitely more opportunity for that. As far as the club scene goes, there's a good scene. I mean, it's a big state. There's, there's big cities here and there's some really good bands down in Florida. So I it I think it's easier just because of the weather, Don. It's a 365-day economy down here. So I think that yeah. makes a big difference. What about your demographics? I mean, what kind of people are showing up? Is it baby boomers? Is it kids? What are you seeing? Well, for what I'm doing, it's, it's a mix. I, I'm going to say I'm 53, and most of the people are going to be working class. I, I mean, you've got young college kids right up to lots of retirees, there's no doubt, but... It's certainly not the state it was when I first moved here 10 years ago. It's not just a retirement state, not even close. Yeah. It, so it, you've got a good mixed bag of folks here, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Low taxes. Oh, yeah, there's no taxes. Yeah. 
It's Florida. Though. I, I hate mean, you it's... so much. I want to go down there, man. <laughs> now, what about the, it's not a podcast, but you've been doing a live Facebook broadcast and I love it. I'm an idiot, so I always forget when it's on. You've moved the times a couple times, but it's usually Thursday nights. Yeah, I just, I just switched. I'm doing every other Wednesday. See? Um, so <laughs> I, no, it is because of my schedule. Every other Wednesday, Don, this Facebook live concert, it's probably like you do in this podcast. It's way more work than I expected it mm-hmm. to be. I thought I thought it would be just like, hey, I'm going to set up and, and just play and not leave the house. And this is going to be super easy. The fact is, it's like setting up a weekly TV show. Yeah. And it makes me respect Johnny Cash and and Tony Orlando and, and all these people that had to do TV music shows back in the days when you and I were kids watching them. That's kind of my inspiration for it, to be honest with you. And I like doing them. And it's it's building a fan base for me that I wouldn't be able to have normally. Do you remember back then, it was almost a prerequisite. If you were on AM radio and you were a big act, you had to have a TV show. It was Sonny and Cher, Tony Orlando, the Osmond, was it Donnie Marie? Didn't they do like an ice skating thing or something, I remember? <laughs> there was um, the Starland Vocal Band at a summer um, replacement show. With a young Dave Letterman as the announcer, believe it or not. See, this is the stuff that you totally remember. Did Jim Stafford have a show too, or am I dreaming that? If he didn't, uh, he should have. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. Yeah, and and, and it's, it's gone. You don't see it anymore. You know who had a good show that they actually brought back? Um, they didn't bring it back, but they showed repeats. Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell, oh my Good God. Time Hour or something like that. He, and he had some decent acts. Um, and look at the Johnny Cash stuff. I mean, he had Derek and the Dominoes. Who the hell had Derek and the Dominoes on TV? You know, I think it was their only TV appearance was on Johnny right. Cash. Right, like Johnny Cash, like hello, you know, with his with his family up there. Um, let's bring in a uh, Bob Dylan. <laughs> I think about it, and it, this is really neat, neat stuff. Breaking down barriers on many, many levels. That wouldn't happen today. No, not at least not on that scale. I'm sure there's some indie and smaller media doing it, which is great. But back then, when you only had three TV stations, and that was in, in a couple of stations on the radio, if you made it to that point, you were you were getting everybody in America. So that's really cool. That's yeah. true. And I mean, that's in no small part why a band like the Beatles were able to just take over seemingly overnight. What was it, 30 million people or some? For those days, that's a lot of viewers. It's a lot of viewers now, but whatever it was, they said the crime rate in New York dropped that night because everybody was home. I mean, that's <laughs> those kind of stats are incredible. And yeah, you know, that's it, it, there's almost too much now, too much oversaturation. Well, I think that um, your guest, John, was t- talking about that with the music industry, how there are so many ways to get entertainment out there. Anybody can record a record or a CD and it's on the Internet immediately, which at first sounds awesome. And it is awesome. But the strange thing is it's a lot more work to find the high quality acts. And if you're an act, it's a lot harder to reach people in a sense, because you've got to go out there and really try to get out there, you know, via social media, whatever. A lot of work. It is a lot of work. Your TV thing that you're doing is great TV, Facebook TV, and it's great. And I love it. And you're getting your music out to people who might not be able to come out to the live gigs. And certainly for your fans back here in Rhode Island, it's a blast seeing you doing your thing. You're going to give us a little preview later on of exactly what a Ted Stevens experience is all about. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, you know what the experience is, Don. It's off the cuff, and it's fairly unrehearsed. And the big thing is this, is I like the fact that you can people can reach out to me. You can say, hey, man, what's happening? And it, it gives me a chance to share stories with people online and talk to people and just bring people into the fold that are sitting in their living room. And I think that's the best part about it, which I can't do at a live show. At the live show, you, you kind of have to play to the whole crowd. But this way, it's almost more intimate. It is. And I've seen that. People say, Teddy, play such and such a song from your, your solo CDs or you know your band CDs or whatever it is. And bang, you just bang right into it with a story about that person. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> live, you know, the years I was playing, I hated requests. Because nine times out of ten, it didn't. We don't fit. know them. It, yeah, you don't know them. Or it didn't even fit the genre. No. Oh, you guys are playing some great blues. Could you do a Britney Spears song for my girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. Next time. Oh. Yep, next time. Teddy, I'm going to go to the dark place. I always got to go to the dark place. It's uh, 
Last time we lost little Richard when we talked. This time the great Trini Lopez passed away from uh, <laughs> COVID-19. Remember Trini Lopez? I had a hammer. A hammer in the morning. A hammer in the evening. All over this land. A hammer around Yes, a little. And, and it, the whole, and this is the reality like of this year for us, like folks that are passing away from the virus. Yep. And yeah, it's, it's sad. It really is. It is sad. And he was old too, 83 years old. He had that cool live album, big hit in 1966, I believe. And you got to check this out. I thought of you when I read this. First of all, he used to play in the late 50s with his band at a Texas nightclub called the Vegas Club, which was owned by Jack Ruby. Wow. Famous for assassinating Lee Harvey Oswald on live TV. Oh, my God. That's that's kind of interesting. Yep. And then later on, he was actually somehow friends with Buddy Holly's dad, who recommended he go see Norman Patty in Clovis, New Mexico. And that's how he got his first recording contract. Wow. And then when Buddy died, he auditioned for the position of vocalist for the Crickets. But huh. He turned it down. You didn't think it was a good fit. I love this. Show. I mean, this is the, this is the stuff you read and you go, wow. Yeah, wow. I yeah. think it was a good move that he didn't become a try to t- jump in on the crickets. Who did? Do you know? I don't know. They did the original um, I Fought the Law, which you do in your live set. Yep. Um, but they didn't have the hit with it. it was Bobby Fuller, right? Right. Fuller did. Yeah. That's right. I love those connections. And talk about connections, like you alluded to earlier, I guess today. John Boylan, great producer. Helped create a genre. Listen to some of the stuff he worked on. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She can take the dark out of the nighttime. Paint the daytime black. finished johnny said well you're pretty good old son but sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done fire on the mountain run boys run the devil's in the house of the rising sun Our guest today has been described as a rock and roll Marco Polo, always exploring for that next new sound or artist. He didn't simply produce acts like Linda Ronstadt, Rick Nelson, the Little River Band in Boston. He played a pivotal role in developing what would become their respective signature sounds at crucial points in their career. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, songwriter, producer, professor, John Boylan. Good morning, John. Hey, Don, how are you? Well, after a couple of technical snafus on my end, pretty good. Yeah, here you got hurricane problems back uh, there in Rhode Island. This is the first time with dear, sweet electricity. Whereabouts are you? Are you in Providence? Uh, right next door. Yeah. 
one of my good friends, I don't know if you know Paula Salvatore, the studio manager at Capitol. She's from Warwick. No, can't say I've had the pleasure. But I've heard some great stories about you, uh, especially how you were exposed at an early age to music in general, and specifically how you came to hear early post-war R&B. Um, like everybody, like I'm a member of what they call the silent generation. I was born in 41, which means I'm too old to be a boomer. Right. So that means that toward the end of World War II, I was fully cognizant and my first exposure to R&B music was when I got the measles and my my uh, dad was a doctor and my mom was pregnant at the time with my younger brother. So my dad took me out of the house immediately, obviously, and put me in his ward at the local army hospital where he was a captain. There were a couple of orderlies there that used to listen to the R&B station in Tacoma, Washington, and they played me Louis Jordan records, Louis Armstrong, all kinds of great uh, R&B of, of the mid-40s. Um, they even taught me, there was a comic catchphrase that became a song at the time called Open the Door, Richard. And when they'd bring me my lunch or anything, they'd knock on the door and I'd, I'd yell, open the door, Richard, and then they'd <laughs> laugh and bring it in. Open the door, Richard. Open the door and let me Open the door, Richard. Richard! Richard, why don't you open that door? Richard, open up the door, man. So that was my first exposure to R&B. I mean, I'd been exposed to other music uh, before that, Burl Ives and a lot of folk records that my dad had, plus classical, of course. Right, right. And where were you out of? Uh, Buffalo, New York. But I imagine you heard all those great R&B stations coming out of Buffalo. Oh, yeah. WKBW with the Hound. George Lorenz, George Houndog Lorenz, yep. was one of the great early proponents of rock and roll. He's where I first heard Little Richard, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, all the great early uh, R&B slash uh, rock and roll artists. One made popular by Lloyd Price. Oh, Lottie, 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 Miss Bunny. Hey, rock and roll. How'd you go from that to working in Tim Pan Alley as a songwriter? Well, that happened after I graduated from college. And again, that happened by sort of an accident. I mean, John Lennon is famous for saying, life is what happens to you while you're making plans. Mm -hmm. uh, when I graduated from Bard College as a theater major in 66, uh, I came down to New York to try to be an actor. I was pounding the pavements, trying to get an agent. I was getting precisely nowhere. Uh, my brother and I had decided to have a little band, we, and we were playing at the Night Owl in the village, and that was actually our day gig while I looked for acting gigs. And uh, I was getting nowhere, but we did much better to, uh, music because we, we had a gig uptown at a club that actually burned down during our first set. Oh and we God. lost all our... Yeah, we lost all our gear and we're looking around for something to do. And my brother, who was more entrepreneurial than I was at the time, uh, he talked his way into Koppelman Rubin Associates in the Tin Pan Alley area, 1650 Broadway, the Brill Building area. And uh, they signed us as staff writers at 50 bucks a week, put us in cubicles. It was kind of a magic time then. I mean, Neil Diamond, Carol King, all those people were around that area and it was kind of a heady place, you sure, know, sure. rubbing shoulders with all those people. And uh, I got my first break coming out of there. Did you actually write any songs that charted? Uh, actually, I did. Uh, my brother and I wrote a song, believe it or not, with the title, Look, Here Comes the Sun. And this is before George Harris. Oh, God, yeah. And it was cut by a, uh, a group in L.A. called the Sunshine Company. And they had like a fairly substantial hit with it. Look, here comes the sun. By that time, I had been writing a lot of songs, and one of my songs caught the ear of Ricky Nelson, and then he requested me to produce his next album, and that was my big break, having Rick Nelson ask me to produce him. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, because in 67, you did uh, Another Side of Rick. Now, th mm -hmm. that had to be a tough period for him, where he had, at yeah. that point, long since outgrown the whole teen idol, Ozzy and Harriet image, and music had changed so much in 10 years. But you guys were laying yeah. that groundwork for what would be like an entirely new genre, the California country That's rock right. sound. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Well, he he never gets credit, but he was definitely, 
you know, one of the progenitors because he actually did a couple of country albums, you know, pure country albums, more like Bakersfield country. Yeah. And he was very much into that music and, of course, into rockabilly as well. Uh, you know, he was the first guy to hire James Burton. So uh, his band, you know, with Joe Osborne and Richie Frost and, and uh, James Burton was, you know, one of the great early bands. And uh, so a lot of people... You know, who gives, Stephen Stills gives him credit, and a couple of other people give him credit, and of course I do too. Right. So I thought I was really lucky uh, to get involved with him. You know, and I was involved in a couple of years. I left Koppelman and Rubin, and I was not officially allowed to produce him at that point because he was still under that deal. But we went in the studio and cut a Bob Dylan song called She Belongs to Me, and that actually became his comeback hit. Beautiful, beautiful production on that. And we're talking, this is before Flying Burrito Brothers, this is yeah. before Grant Parsons. It's all in that same time period, and, and Rick definitely deserves that credit. And you wrote a couple of songs for that album. What was it? Uh, Suzanne on Sunday Morning? Yeah, that was the one that got me going there. Uh, yeah. That was the one, first one he picked. Uh, I wrote a few others, and I wrote with him as well. Uh, but I be gradually began to see that um, my strengths really was more organizational and in a leadership role. And that's when I really wanted to be a studio record producer. And that's what I aimed my career toward. Was Linda Ronstadt next? No, the next thing that happened to me was on the strength of a lot of this, uh, I got hired by a really great band called The Association to do the soundtrack for a movie called Goodbye Columbus. It was a very big hit movie, it made a star out of Ally McGraw. The play begins and then we enter on cue. This kind of love has been long overdue. If you listen, you can learn something too. You know that love's the So that catapulted me forward. At that point, I start, was hanging around at the Troubadour, and that scene was really starting to burgeon. And I heard the Dillards there. I really loved their harmonies. They were another unsung progenitor of this whole California country rock thing. Yeah. Because everyone copied their harmonies. That harmony that Poco copied, that CSN copied, every, the Eagles, everybody. I did an album with the Dillards, and that really got me into the country rock thing. And that's when I met Linda which was, uh, I think, early in 1970 when her Silk Purse album was coming out. I met her in the Troubadour Bar. Mm -hmm. And she actually uh, had heard of me. I, I didn't know how, but she said, you did that Rick Nelson record of the Dylan song, and you put together that Stone Canyon band. I said, yeah. And she said, can you do that for me? And I said, hell yes. I mean, I thought she was a phenomenal singer. I was happy to have her uh, ask me to work with her. Sure. And of course, the band we put together, uh, I think it's fairly well known, became the Eagles. Right. Was it, I know Randy Meisner was part of that? Uh, yeah. I knew Randy had quit Poco over an argument about the mixes. And I was hanging as Troubadour. I knew that at the time, talking to Dickie Davis, their manager. And so I hired Randy to be in the Stone Canyon band. Right. And uh, he brought some of his buddies from the mountain rain area uh, along with him. That became the Stone Canyon Band. So when it came time for Linda to have a new band, the first two people we hired were Glenn and Don. Mm -hmm. uh, and we went out on the road in April of 71 with Glenn and Don and me in the band and two other guys. And we played a fairly extensive four or five week tour of the East Coast area, culminating in playing the Fillmore East with Poco. And uh, during that tour is when Don and Glenn decided to form a band. So right. um, Linda suggested that Bernie Ledden would be a good lead guitarist because she knew Bernie. He'd been in her band earlier. And I suggested Randy because I knew that uh, he was leading the Stone Canyon band. Right. So that, that became the Eagles. They, as the actual Eagles, they only played behind Linda once, and that was for an extended gig at Disneyland. So you had great bona fide credibility with that country sound, yet you are instrumental in getting the band Boston off the ground. Can you talk about how that came to be? Well, actually, my role with Boston was definitely obstetric. Let's face it. I mean, Tom Scholz knew exactly what he was doing. When I heard them, I was uh, blown away by the guitar sounds that he was getting and by Brad Delp, the lead singer. Now, if you're
And I couldn't believe that people had passed on this band. Paul Ahern, who had, I had known, he was a promotion man at Asylum with Linda in Atlantic. He played me the tape, and he was having problems uh, getting somebody to sign it. I believe Clive Davis passed on it. A whole bunch of people passed on it. And uh, so I said, you know, I'll help you. And we went down to the CBS Records A&R meetings in San Diego, and we just jumped all over uh, Steve Popovich and Lenny Pizzi and said, look, you got to sign this band. They're great. And they said, well, if you'll produce, and if there's a real band, we'll sign them. And of course, that means we had to put a real band together. We got Sib and Franny and everybody into a room in Boston and showed them that there could be an actual band. Right. And we were off and running. And then the rest of the recording was all subterfuge because uh, Epic Records at that point, part of the CBS Records family with Columbia, was, you know, we had union recording studio issues. Uh, the union required every CBS Records Act to record in a CBS studio if they were within a couple hundred miles of New York, uh, L.A., or Nashville. So recording in Boston, we were in that window. So Scholes had done a lot of stuff in his basement already. Right. So I hired a few microphones from Hanley Sound. We set up and did the drums to a click track. He uh, had not recorded the drums quite right. Uh, and so we, we redid the drums. He had all his guitar parts. He put the bass on. I took the rest of the band back to L.A. because he was working at Polaroid and did not want to quit his job. So he would go to work every day. He would come home. His wife would make him a sandwich, and he'd go down in the basement and finish up. Meanwhile, I went to L.A. with the rest of the band, cut two or three songs, a couple of which ended up on the album. And then when Scholes was finished, keeping up the subterfuge, I, uh, at my own expense, hired a remote recording truck from Providence, Rhode Island, believe it or not. And they uh, drove up to Watertown, Mass., right by Cambridge, ran a snake through Scholz's basement window, transferred his 12-track audio to a 12 tracks of a 24-track, and then Scholz brought those tapes with him out to L.A. We added them to the ones we had, did all the vocals at Capitol Studio C uh, with Brad, did some percussion overdubs, including those hand claps on More Than a Feeling, which were done in the men's room at Capitol, because <laughs> it, it had a great sound. Yeah. It really did, you know. You knew it every time you went in there. And uh, then we mixed it at the old Westlake Mix Room at 6311 Wilshire, which started out as a demo room for API, but they actually turned it into a mix room and we mixed it there. I mixed it with Warren Dewey and with Scholes, the three of us at the console. That's, we, we mixed it and then I took it back to New York and played it for everybody and they went nuts. And that's the thing that gets me. The subterfuge, as you say, all the extra work. But what made you think then that it was all going to be worth it? Well, first of all, I had trust in Scholes once I heard the sound and talked to him. I mean, I taught that guy everything I could in about a week. And then he didn't need me anymore. So I became a facilitator, you yeah, know. Right. And I realized right away I was going to have to be a co-producer instead of a producer, number one. Number two, I was going to have to do whatever needed to be done to finish this project. They shut a door in your face. Go find another door, which is exactly what I tried to do all the way through. And it ended up working out. It was the right thing to do. Part of being a producer is being a utility infielder. You know, you got to plug every hole in the project and, and get done what needs to get done. Sure. So that's what I, I, I don't think I was any kind of influence on the sound of that band other than helping him mix. You know, he, I think I taught him a bit about mixing and I taught him a bit about acoustic recording, but he did everything everything else he knew. So the whole thing there is to get this project done. And that's what we did. And then based on the strength of the Boston success, Epic Records made you vice president of West Coast Productions? Yeah, well, I was uh, hired as vice president of A&R West Coast, yeah, okay. for Epic. Uh, actually, that happened before the album came out. Oh. Uh, you know, it's when I delivered it that Greg Geller made the offer. And... Uh, so I was hired, yeah. At that point, I thought, you know, this will be great because I won't have to worry about my next production job. Right. I'll, you know, yeah. and uh, I, I was there for 12 years, had the best time, man. It was a wonderful place to be at a wonderful time. I mean, that was when the music business was fun. Let's face it, it's not so much fun right now. It's not so much of a music business right now either, but that's a whole nother. Yeah. Going to get to that later. But during that period, is that when you went to Australia? 
Yeah, my contract with CBS called for me to be allowed to do one outside project a year. You know, I did have somewhat of a name in the in the area. I had done Pure Prairie League and Linda. So I wanted to maintain some independence, and they were kind enough to allow me to do one outside a year. So in 75, I had gone down to New Zealand and Australia to give some lectures on behalf of one of their organizations. Uh, it was great. I got a free trip down there, and I loved it. I saw a lot of great music down there. I saw the band that became Crowded House called Split Ends, and I saw a Little River Band. At that point, they were called Mississippi. And then, in lo and behold, in 77, I get a call from Rupert Perry at Capitol, and he said, remember that band you told me about Mississippi? Well, uh, I'd like you to produce their next album. I said, well, I'll make that my one outside project. Why you in so much hurry? I went down to Melbourne and did Help Is On Its Way and Happy Anniversary and that Diamantina Cocktail. Yep. So yeah, I did four albums with them in the end. Uh, we had six top 10 singles in a row, 77, 78, and 79. And people told me I was nuts to go there. You're going where? I mm. mean, you know, it was a long way away. The first flight I took down there was 17 hours. But it was a great scene down there. And I said, whoa. You know, I'm tapped into the beginning of a cool music scene. And look what happened. It completely exploded. Men at Work, In Excess, all the great acts that came out of there. Sure. Their sound especially is so, yeah. just so well recorded. Thank you. I had great engineers down there, Ernie Rose and Ross Cockle and some great engineers down there. And then my regular engineer, Paul Grupp, mixed uh, Diamantina Cocktail up here at Westlake. It was a great uh, collaboration. And I'm still friends with... Uh, Glenn Shork, the lead singer, we talk all the time. They are so underrated. I mean, there's not a bad song on their list. There's yeah. Under the Wire. Great record. Sure. Well, that is cool change uh -huh. and Lonesome Loser. Have you heard about the Lonesome Loser? Harmonies were uh, completely uh, unique. They had a three-part thing going like the Eagles CSN, but they also had a clear high voice like the Hollies, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of a hybrid of the English and the California sound, which is very unique. Back to the country thing, I know you worked with Charlie Daniels, and I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. A great loss, A too. great gentleman, yeah. a lovely man. Now, he had had success. Yeah. Quite a while. I mean, Uneasy Riders, very cool too, and I always enjoy that. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, I was a big Charlie fan. And sure. I was at Epic, and uh, Don Dempsey, who was running the labels, had said, We've hit kind of a wall with Charlie here. We're stuck at about 250,000 units. Uh, do you think you can bring anything to the party? I said, I hope I can, you know, because I love Charlie. So I met with him, and we hit it off as people. Uh, it was really great. And I said, I'm going to come out on the road with him. So I flew to Albany, New York, and um, I I went to a gig with them. He was playing at a college there. And uh, I get there in the afternoon and we go to dinner with the local promotion guy. His name was John Sykes. And he later went on to great glory with HBO and other places, MTV. Yeah. We, uh, he played the concert. Uh, he did radio interviews. He hung out with the College kids afterwards went to some club, sat in. In the morning, he's knocking on my hotel door. Listen, I sent the bus ahead. Can you drive me to the next gig? I said, where is it? He said, Utica. I said, okay, Utica's, you know, like 70 or 80 miles away. No problem. Yeah. I, uh, my, it's my home territory anyway. So I drove him there. He's talking all the way. We get there. He plays guest DJ on WOUR. He plays his guitar on the air. He goes, Again, and has dinner with the local DJs, does the gig. Then he's again hanging out. I said, this guy is tireless. 
I said, if I can just get anything on record, his work ethic is going to get us all the way home. Right. And I, and I watched the two gigs and I got very, very lucky, Don, because every once in a while you can spot the problem pretty easily without any trouble. And in this case, I spotted it. They had two big problems, and it was all came from the fact that they were doing 200 dates a year on the road. They were, of course, getting bored, so they were playing everything at a faster tempo, and they were all overplaying because they were kind of bored. So they're playing more stuff than they need to, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I, so when I went into the rehearsal, I said, okay, stop. Let's strip everything down. And I introduced him to the idea of using a metronome, not to play to, but to set the tempo and make it the same every time. Sure. And the first tune we cut was Devil Went Down to Georgia. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. Had that been in his live act? No, no. no. He, wrote, he, he, were, he used to write in the rehearsal hall. He had a trailer on his ranch there in uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And he, we, we'd rehearse in that trailer. And they'd just jam on tracks. And then he'd write the lyrics. You know, Devil Went Down to Georgia started as homage to the great fiddle bands like the Skillet Lickers. Right. You know, or the Fruit Jar Drinkers. Yeah. You know, all those great square dance bands from the 30s and 40s, and um, that's how it started out. Immediately realized that this was a cool story song. I wasn't sure it could be a single, but I thought, well, just in case, there's a line in there, I done told you once, you son of a bitch, I'm the best it's ever been. And I said, Charlie, go back out there, we got the vocal. Uh, Sing that line again, but sing Son of a Gun, we'll put it on another channel. He said, okay. I said, you know, there are some Southern stations that won't play that. It's that simple. Mm. There's this guy, Gordon McClendon, was a programmer down south, and he wouldn't play anything that was even remotely edgy, you know? Yeah. I said, do that. And I said, we'll mix it. We'll put it at the end of the reel in case we need it. He said, okay. Johnny said, devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again. Because I told you once, you son of a gun, I'm the best as ever been. He played Found a Mountain Run, Boy, Run. Devil's in the house of the rising sun. So I turned the album in, I went down to uh, Melbourne, and I'm starting on Little River Band, and I get this call at 3 a.m. from the head of A&R, uh, who was a good head of A&R, but he couldn't add or subtract, because it was 3 a.m., Yeah. and he wakes me up and says, John, you gotta get back on the plane, you gotta come back, we gotta do something on, Devil Went Down to George's Breaking Out, and they won't play it. I said, relax, Lenny. I already did it. Call my engineer. He'll cut the thing in. And they did a special 45 for those Southern stations. And the thing went on to sell a million copies. Sure. Went number one country, number three pop, won a Grammy. I managed to shoehorn it into the next movie I worked on, which was Urban Cowboy. And Charlie got a part in Urban Cowboy. That's right. appeared in the movie. Yep. So uh, it was a big hit all the way around. I was just going to say, Urban Cowboy, decent movie, phenomenal soundtrack. My Um, friend uh, Becky Shargo, she was called at the time. She's now Becky Winding and married to a good friend of mine. And uh, she was really the first of the rock-oriented, pop-oriented music supervisors in Hollywood. And working with Jim Bridges, who really understood music, was really great. And Becky was a music supervisor. She brought me in on it. I did this song called Looking for Love with Johnny Lee. Another crossover hit. Big crossover hit. Yeah, it became a huge hit at the time. And then I, I also ended up compiling and mastering the album. Uh, it was a double album, and I think we did three or four million on that one. And it was, uh, you know, that was a really great experience. That's right in the time period that I personally loved because I was about nine years old in 1980. And for mm-hmm. me, top 40 music was just fantastic. I fell in love with rock and roll at that time. And great. there was definitely a band that I think, again, doesn't get the credit they deserve, Quarter Flash. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Two great radio hits, and you were part of that as well. Talk about them. 
Well, truth is, uh, I owe that one to a lady named Carol Childs, who was working for David Geffen. David had just decided to start another label, Geffen Records. He'd made a deal with Warner Brothers. David and I had been longtime friends, you know, 40 years or so. And Carol knew that Little River Band had decided not to use me for the fourth album. They hired some guy, I forget. Oh, yeah, George Martin. Uh-huh. I've heard of him. <laughs> they got a chance to work with George Martin, and I can't really blame him. He did a great album. With sure, sure. But then my, you know, my one a year free slot was open again, and I was torn between two bands. Pablo Cruz approached me, and then Carol approached me with this Geffen project. Uh, the band was called Seafood Mama, and I heard that song hard in my heart. I said, "That's a hit single." And so I flew up to Seattle to see them. They were based in Portland, Oregon. The nicest people. They were both teachers, Marvin, Rindy Ross, running the band. There were some issues. Uh, the drummer was okay, but not great. I didn't like the name that much. And I brought him down here, and we worked on the album, and it just came out great. And, of course, David, you know, he's got a new label. He just went for it. He, they worked that record, and Hard My Heart and Find Another Fool, and both became big hits out of that record. about Marvin and Rindy was that uh, they really were very brainy people. Let's face it, they were both qualified teachers. They loved music and they really approached the whole thing, both from the heart and from the head. And that was really uh, an interesting way to work. I'm still friends with them, by the way. Every time I go to Portland, I look them up and we go hang out. Well, that seems to be a thread I'm noticing with the people you work with. A, you're still friends with them. I've seen you uh, sure. out and about with Linda and, and, and everyone you've mentioned. And also the braininess. Guys like Tom Scholes, the two from Florida yeah. Quarterfly. It, it seems to be if the work ethic is strong enough, um, sure. you could get something done. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Uh, you got two things here. You got art and craft. Yep. Uh, not everyone is an artist. People are inspired and imaginative, uh, but it's not going to get you too far unless you've got some craft. Right. You have to combine the two, just like you have to combine music and business. There has to be a balance there. And that's why uh, I have gravitated toward people with a great work ethic, because I know that in the end, that's a major factor. You have to do your due diligence. I'd like to give a shout out if I could. Please. I've been working with Lynn Ronstadt, as you probably know, my second go-around with her for the last 20 years. I've been managing her and producing her records. And since she developed Parkinson's, sadly, and cannot sing, we've done a lot of projects. Her book, which was a bestseller, the uh, documentary movie that we just worked on that just came out a few months ago. Fantastic. Lynn yeah. Ronstadt, the song, yeah, it was a really terrific movie, came out great. Uh, and then we have another a number of projects in the worst. But she's got a pet project that I want everyone to look out for. Sure. She's been the patron of a Mexican heritage culture group in the East Bay uh, in near Oakland called Los Senzontles. And there's a documentary about them coming out soon. It's called Linda and the Mockingbirds, and I want everyone to look out for it. Great. And this will be available where? I think it's going to stream in every, you know, it'll be, I think they, they just got Telluride. So it's going to premiere at the Telluride Film Festival, which unfortunately will be virtual. But uh, it'll be on that. And I think uh, HBO Max, I'm not sure. It, they're working those deals out now. Well, as we wrap up, and I, and I asked this, not looking for like a, a flip answer or anything, but what the hell has happened to the music business? To me, it's an elongated transition phase we're in right now. Uh, be, and the reason is that the paradigm shifted so dramatically. I mean, the paradigm shift in the music business is akin to what happened when Henry Ford rolled out the first Model T and a whole bunch of people found themselves in the buggy whip business, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, and the stable horse and stable business mm -hmm. in the buggy business. They were completely out of luck, you know, too yeah. bad. So it, 
we had a complete paradigm shift when the CD came along, when digital music came along, because that forced a democratization of the recording process and of the distribution process together with the internet. And the record companies, quite frankly, were caught in what I call a trouser ankle entrapment. They were caught with their pants down completely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they uh, they just didn't know what to do. They sued everybody. They were trying to circle the wagons. They said, who moved my cheese, if you've ever read that book? And they just couldn't figure it out. Right. And they lost their status as the gatekeepers. Now, if you look at Nashville as a sort of a smaller example of the whole thing, mm. Nashville, the executives in Nashville know that there are only X amount of country radio stations and only X amount of country music fans. Therefore, they gatekeep. They limit the number of artists, limit the amount of music that's going out there so that they don't overload the system. For years, that worked great for them. And on a bigger scale, that's what the labels did as well. They acted as gatekeepers. You know, it, it was good in one sense because you knew that the quality control was going to be very high. Because you, to get through that gate, you not only had to be good, you had to be persistent. And you also had to be lucky and you had to have a whole bunch of stuff going for you. That's all gone. There are no gatekeepers. There is more recording power in the laptop I'm looking at now than there was in the entire building that I did the first Ricky Nelson album. In. I'm sure. And so anybody can make a CD. Now, that means that we're going to be flooded with a whole bunch of crap mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of good stuff mm -hmm. and that things are going to now shake out. The public, I think, will learn to be its own gatekeeper. Right now, it's not doing it. It's grabbing at things. Right. It's grabbing at Justin Bieber and all these other things. On the other hand, there are some really interesting artists out there right now as well, like Brandy Carlisle and Sia and Dua Lipa and a few other artists that I really think are good. I think Charlie Puth is a good artist. A really terrific little writer, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think in the end, the public will learn to act as their own gatekeepers and they will learn to screen out the junk and their taste will get better. That's why I think in about 10 years, when 5G has finally managed to take over and we've got all the bandwidth we need, not only will the music get better, but the audio quality will get better. Everything will get better. I think this is a transition period, Don, and I think we got another five to 10 years to get through it. You are an eternal optimist. I like it. It's me.
Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band right there from the 1980 soundtrack album for Urban Cowboy, featuring songs hand-chosen by the great producer John Boylan, who I want to thank again for being part of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast this week. And now, Teddy, the reason I chose that one, and you got to bear with me here while I demonstrate what a music nerd sounds like. <laughs> that studio version of Nine Tonight is only available on the Urban Cowboy soundtrack. The single that we all heard growing up on FM radio came out a year later, and that was off Seeger's live album. You can't find it anywhere else but there. I love that shit. You know what I mean? I just no. That's the that, that's the true music fan when you start hearing this kind of like the live version versus the studio or why one was a hit and maybe the other wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was a, a left off track from Against the Wind. You know, they recorded more tracks than they needed, and that was one of them. But let me ask you: live songs that were hits whose studio version we don't ever hear or think about. Oh, yeah. Can you think okay. of any of those? Right off the bat, the world's greatest live band, in my opinion, the Jay Giles Band, who I know you've seen him, Don, you told me. 1980. Jay Giles, yep. they had some big hits on the radio. I mean, you know, um, Whamma Jamma, Hard Driving Man, I'm Looking for a Love. That, that's the right. Those are the ones I remember right off the bat, getting big playlists. Mm -hmm. and, and they all were good studio takes. But there's nothing like that live performance that they captured. I do. That I do. I, oh, my God. Yes. Totally. One. And there is a studio version, which you never hear. But the live version was a, was a, was a single. That tune. And that's an old, old cover. Yep. Um, yeah. That's a prime example of awesomeness. I'll give you one. All right. Cheap Trick, I Want You to Want Me. Live from the Budokan. There is a studio version. I don't even think I've ever heard it. I've heard it. And when you hear it, you're like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. You, you serious? Nothing. And I and a Cheap Trick, one of our favorite bands of all time. Sure. But it's but that live version is just magical. It's a magical tune. Yep. And what else? Turn the page. Bob Seger. I actually like that studio version better from his album back in 72. And it's got this very cool like electric world. It's a bit that you don't have on the live version and it's a little slower because you know live everything's going to be done a little faster a little more energy a bit overplayed for my taste but whenever i hear the studio version it just hits the spot how about this and that's a great tune how about this here's a band another band right that it's all about the live show the almond brothers band uh one i think a one way out i mean there's a bunch of them probably one way out that that live version is insane oh yeah oh yeah and the studio version i think is on the first album right again you just you know you know how hard it is to record something live to get a to get the sounds just pure you know the mechanic the balance um it's tough then to capture the performance you may do the song 50 times a month but to get that one where you go oh my god that was like lightning in a bottle you know, if, if you have limitless funds like National Axe did, sure, you can record every night and, and have that luxury. The last CD I did was a live CD. We recorded three sets. You know, Don, typical club night. So I played probably 35 songs. I squeaked 15 onto the CD, barely. And, and you know, because you're ultra critical. Sure. Uh, I played really bad on that one, but the drummer nailed it. Oh my God, what a great take. And all of a sudden you hear like a flat harmony or this just, oh, I was out of tune again. Like it's just hard. It is. But you do it. And then sometimes, you know what? It's also like sometimes all that messiness and out of tuneness. But if the, if the energy's there, look at the Rolling Stones. Their oh. live records are kind of all over the map, but oh the God, energy's yeah. there. Yeah. Get your yayas out. That yeah. the opening track, Jumpin' Jack Flash. I always hear Charlie comes in just a little late. Just this <laughs> the here. And that would bother me. I'd say, no, we're not putting that out. I'm the drummer. I have a reputation on uphold. They didn't give a shit. They're like, we're the fucking stones. It's yeah. We did it that way because it's meant to be that way, you know? And that's I guess you need a good producer to just kind of slap you around and say, put it out. Don't be afraid. You know, an artist is the worst producer of all. I agree. Yeah, you, artists are not generally the best producers, which is a good thing. You need you need someone else overseeing and helping you out with with this stuff. Teddy, will you produce me? Oh my God, you don't want me producing. <laughs> me. I want. I like playing with you, man. Yeah. And yeah. then you and I get someone like see if you can get 
John Boylan to produce this. Oh my God, <laughs> I wish. Teddy, I, I, I tell you, we're talking about music and, and playing out. I, I got to hear you. I want to hear Ted Stevens. Do you, do you have something you might want to share with the vast listening audience? Well, I've got a story that pertains to you, Don. Huh? Years ago, we were in the van driving home from a gig or driving to the gig. Mm. And you're like, Teddy, um, I was thinking of some songs for the band. And he goes, I got a tune that I think you would want to sing and no one does this tune we could rock it up a little bit and make it our own and i'm telling you it would be a hit for us and i was like what tune you said bobby darren you pause and i'm like mac the knife like what (laughs) and you said dream lover and i was like dream lover and i was like Oh, God darn, I don't know. I, I know Splish Splash and I know Mac the Knife. I was like, Dream Lover, it's kind of a cool tune. So I, I, I cast it aside. I didn't really think about it. I thought it was a good idea, but I didn't take it up until about 15 years later. And we, I was looking for new tunes for my trio, and uh, I listened to Dream Lover. I thought it, the story we had, and I was like going through the changes, and I was like, I think this tune is good. He's right. This is a good tune. So I started doing my set and now I got to be honest with you. Not only do I do it all the time, it tends to be one of our more popular tunes. That's a great song. (laughs) It is a great song. Gonna play it? I could totally play it. Ted Stevens, Dream Lover. Here we go. A little bit of the late, late, great Bobby Bobby Darren. Darren. This This is is a tune you requested 20 20 years years ago and I I told told you I'd I'd do it it, and it it took took me 20 years to get to it. This is Dream Lover. Oh, yeah. Every night, hope and pray. A dream lover will come my way. A girl will hold you in my arms. A girl will hold for her charms because I want a girl to call my mom dream love so I'll never dream alone dream love until I go to see the sea again that's the only thing you do with a woman that's also true because I want Girl, to call, yeah, my own. Dream of love, so I'll never dream of. Someday, I don't know how you're gonna hear my plea. Someday, I don't know how you're gonna give your love to me, yeah, yeah. Teddy Stevens. That was fantastic, man. 
I feel like Maybe. it's like circa 2005. We're back in Bourne, Massachusetts, <laughs> at the, at some godforsaken campground <laughs> near Dwell's around the stage. Don, you're the first person I ever. I I, I got to say something. In my whole career, I have played every. I have. I've played a lot of great gigs. I've played some really not so good gigs. But with you, they've always been fun. They're always memorable, and you can definitely say this, Don. That you're the you're the guy that put me on the campground circuit in New England. I bought more deep woods off that those. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I'm serious. It's and an I untapped loved it. market, Teddy. It's, it's an untapped market. Don, we always had fun and still have fun. I, who doesn't want to be at a campground exactly. playing rock and roll? Come we got, on. We got s'mores. We're going nuts. It's crazy. <laughs> I Te- love it. Teddy, where can people hear your music online? And where can they see the show? They can see the show. First of all, you can see the show now online, which is pretty wild. My website, tedstevens.net. And I hope you guys, if you're listening, get go to tedstevens.net when you're bored out of your mind. Click on a few things. Say hi to me. Go on my Facebook, Ted Stevens. You'll see me in Sarasota. And I'm playing down here quite a bit. Want to hear from you. Listen to my music. Have fun. We'll talk about the old days. That's right. You won't be bored for long if you visit Teddy's website. You won't. Teddy, thank you very much for doing this again. And I'll see you all next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Bye.